Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas. The criminal justice system has failed the Aboriginal peoples of Canada. So says the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. The justice system has failed Manitoba's Aboriginal people on a massive scale. So says the Manitoba Aboriginal Justice Inquiry. The number of natives in jail should shock the conscience of everyone in Canada, says the Supreme Court. Behind these statements lies the reality of what is sometimes curiously called Aboriginal overrepresentation in jails, as if we elected our prisoners. Native Canadians are five times as likely to be sent to federal prisons as other citizens, and in some provinces, 25 times as likely to be sent to provincial jails. Tonight in Ideas, we ask why this has happened and whether new institutions constructed according to Aboriginal principles and traditions can remedy this disastrous situation. The program is part of our continuing series about the idea of restorative justice. It's called To Hurt or to Heal, and this is part four by David Cayley. When Murray Sinclair was in law school, he told a friend that his dream job would be to travel around Manitoba and ask Aboriginal people about their relationship to the justice system. Ten years later, Murray Sinclair was made Manitoba's first Aboriginal judge, and only the second in all of Canada. The very next week, a Native man called J.J. Harper was shot by a Winnipeg policeman. In response to the furor that followed, the provincial government appointed the Manitoba Aboriginal Justice Inquiry, and Murray Sinclair got his wish. He and another judge were asked to investigate the relationship between the administration of justice and the Aboriginal people of Manitoba. This was what they found. About two-thirds of the men who are locked up in the jails in Manitoba were Aboriginal men. Just over 70% of all of the the boys who are locked up in the youth justice system are Aboriginal boys. About 80% of all the girls who are locked up in the youth justice system are Aboriginal girls. About 90% of all the women who are locked up are Aboriginal women. And uh, the inclination was to think that it had always been that way. But we discovered from the statistics that we were able to find that prior to the Second World War, there was uh, no Aboriginal overrepresentation in the jail system that Aboriginal people were being incarcerated at about the same rate as they were in the population. And in Manitoba, that's about 12%. And uh, in fact, at the turn of the century, the Aboriginal inmate population in Manitoba was less than the Aboriginal population of the province, percentage-wise. And I was struck by that. I was struck by that from the perspective of an Aboriginal person because what it said to me was, it has not always been like this. This finding was a revelation to Judge Sinclair, and it focused his commission's inquiry. What had happened since the 1950s to produce this huge influx into the province's jails? The commission suggested many reasons. Changes in the province's liquor laws during the 1950s, which opened beer parlors to natives new policing agreements which stationed RCMP detachments in Aboriginal communities for the first time, the demoralization of Native war veterans who had braved battle for their country 
and then returned home to find they were still second-class citizens. But the overarching reason, the Commission found, was the cumulative effect of public policies which undermined Aboriginal cultures. One of the main agencies of this destruction, Judge Sinclair says, was the residential school, where Native children were sent, in the words of one teacher, to have the Indian educated out of them. By the 1950s, between seven and ten generations of kids had gone through the residential school system, which had been started in Canada in the 1870s. And in Manitoba, it became the law in the 1880s. So between the 1880s and the 1950s, that many generations of kids uh, had gone through the residential school system. And we're just now, I think, beginning to realize the impact that residential schools has had on the communities, the most significant of which has been the amount of abuse, not necessarily sexual, but uh, and not even necessarily physical, but emotional and psychological abuse that these kids went through. Even if they weren't verbally abused, then they were placed into an institutional setting from the time that they were five until they were 18 years of age. And when you're raised in an institutional setting, you don't know anything about how to raise a family or how to take care of children or how to take care of a household or how to how to be uh, a normal human being in a family structure, not to speak of the terrible burdens that might have been placed upon you through the way that you were treated while in schools. And uh, while the initial generations of kids would have been uh, able to be counseled and treated and helped by the generations of older people who were at home and who were there for them when they were finished these schools and when they were released to these uh, to their homes from these schools. As time passed, there were fewer and fewer older people in their communities who could do that for them, and therefore they lost that kind of resource. And that residential school environment is coupled significantly with the laws that made it illegal for Aboriginal people to practice their spiritual and traditional and cultural ways. And uh, one of the things that I have learned as an Aboriginal adult that I didn't know as an Aboriginal child was the tremendous importance of uh, spiritual healing and the importance of utilizing uh, ways that allow you to connect to yourself and to your family and to your community that will help you to overcome whatever has been done to you or whatever you may have done to others. It was the undermining of Aboriginal cultures, Judge Sinclair believes, that led to the problems that the justice system now treats as punishable crimes. But punishment, he says, has just created new problems. Aboriginal societies were generally composed of small, non-hierarchical, highly interdependent groups living from the land, a situation in which there was no place for a separate institution of punishment. And so this alien institution only served to further erode their morale. The Aboriginal approach to problem identification and problem resolution, and I'm using those words in the, in the widest possible sense, including uh, the resolution of, of offenses and offending, or crime as we would call it, uh, is different than the non-Aboriginal approach. In English common law, the need developed very early on for there to be a uh, recognized principle called the rule of law in order to prevent people from being easily 
convicted and uh, punished because uh, punishment was an incredibly significant part of the entire process. If you know anything about English criminal law, you know that people could be physically punished, they could be drawn and quartered and cut up and dismembered and uh, and you could be uh, uh, executed for any one of, uh, of dozens of types of offenses. Uh, you could uh, be uh, physically whipped, locked up in stocks and be punished in, in ways that were very demeaning. And so in order to protect people from being falsely accused, the English uh, criminal system historically developed means to make it more difficult than easy to uh, convict people. So the entire uh, concept of, of legal process and due process arose because we wanted to make sure that if we're going to punish this person severely, and that's what we did with them usually in the past, then we wanted to be sure that we had the right person or that the person was in fact guilty of what it was that he was charged with doing. Uh, whereas in the Aboriginal community, the concept of punishment was not there, and therefore the whole question of due process, or, or the question of process, was not as significant, because ultimately the manner in which you resolve things was not intended to punish the person, but was intended to uh, focus on a solution that both sides were happy with. And when you take that approach to it, then you don't worry so much about process and guilt uh, determination. You worry more about whether or not there's a, a, a means of resolving this. And uh, a lot of Aboriginal people still have that view of offenses, particularly when the victim is a, a family member or somebody in the community that they know, that they're primarily motivated to see if they can work out something that uh, everybody's happy with. And so the adversarial system, which evolved out of the English common law system, is not uh, well suited to an approach like the Aboriginal person would bring to it. The Aboriginal understanding of justice remains vital and distinctive, Murray Sinclair says, and that, for him, is the key to eventually stemming the flood of natives into prisons. He has been involved himself in helping to set up several alternative justice programs for Aboriginal people in Manitoba. Change will take time, he says, because of the profound disruption in Aboriginal cultures, but he is confident that the recovery of Aboriginal ways will someday put an end to his people's captivity. In a series of recent decisions, the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized that Aboriginal law is an Aboriginal right. Aboriginal peoples, the court has said, were once independent nations with their own practices, traditions, and customs. Their right to continue in these traditions was recognized by the treaties made by the British Crown and has now become part of Canada's constitution. And this right, according to the court's 1997 Delgamuk decision, includes a distinctive understanding and practice of law. The question in the wake of these rulings is what Aboriginal law means. The long-standing colonial assumption has been that law, by definition, can mean only one thing, a positive, written legal code. But now Aboriginal scholars have begun to challenge this view and offer their own account of law. 
One of the rallying points in this recovery has been the Native Law Center at the University of Saskatchewan. Sawgage Henderson is its research director, and like Murray Sinclair, one of the Aboriginal pioneers in the world of Canadian law. He says that the Aboriginal understanding of law is dramatically different from the one that developed in Western Europe. We've never had a theory of, of abstract law like European law, which is all man-made, now being influenced by women, but basically it was constructed from a logical, rational model. But what it was never built on was the land. It was never built on a, a sensibility toward the land. And you sort of get the idea that this comes from being kicked out of Eden, is that European people will have to figure out how to survive by their own wits since God kicks them out and, and the Jewish people's narratives say that God stops talking to them at a time and then sends them out. So they have to rethink up the Talmud and try and remember what God told them in another period and write it down and try to carry that on. And that leads into Roman law and the Greek law too. And the Greeks were very clear that there was two kinds of law. One they call physics, which is law derived from nature. And the other is nomos, which is law created by convention or by men. Unfortunately, Europe went nomos uh, path. They went to create artificial law. So everything in their law system is artificially constructed, where everything in Aboriginal thought is constructed from the environment. That it's not clear in our language where our flesh ends and where the earth begins. It's just a very superficial boundary. It's very clear in our language is that what people call sky is part of water. That we, our language doesn't distinguish that, that we live in shallow and thin water. But our concept for water is animate, it's an action, it's not just a cup of water. It's, the environment is full of water and our body's full of water and it starts at that so fundamental level that we are the environment. And so when we start looking for sources of law, we look to the land itself. And it can always be learned, and the land always changes, so it's never set. We always deal with flux, and we always deal with change, and we don't think it's real helpful to have a bunch of rules that are set down. Uh, it's better to have much better processes which humans can respect and live up to than a, a bunch of rules written in a book like the Ten Commandments and such. Now, it's not yet quite clear to me what it means to derive law from environment. Well, it would be called in Eurocentric traditions, originally the natural law traditions, is that there's something implicate in society, in the way mothers respond to babies, in the way fathers re refer to their children. There's some code that's implicit in loving and caring and kindness and generosity and terror and uh, bitterness and jealousy that should establish the way people regulate themselves. It's not looking for mystical uh, solutions, but it's trying to delve into the way they relate, they relate with each other, the way the, the land relates to the shore, the way the, the waves relates to the beach, the way the wind 
comes through the leaves in the tree and creates noises, all of those are about a relationship. And so Aboriginal laws are nothing more than law of relationships, which are sometimes called the kinship state. But more fundamentally, it's beyond just the relationship between human to human. It's a relationship with all the forces of the ecology and all the constraints it puts on people, whether it be in a desert where water and crops that have to be grown that don't need water are there, or in the forest, which requires a certain cleaning of the uh, underbrush all the time to keep the, the trees good. Those kind of relationships are also part of our laws. Aboriginal law, as Sawgage Henderson expounds it, is the consciousness of natural relationships, along with the duties and obligations this consciousness entails. And this consciousness is expressed in a language and in a way of life, not in formal codes or authoritative institutions. Violations of law, to this way of thinking, demand a return to the right path, a restoration of proper relationships. But this is not what Native people have found, Henderson says, in Canadian courts. The courts now think that just by punishing us and putting us in jail for all the mistakes and the terror we do and all the bad things we do, that that's going to heal us. And that's not going to heal us because we've seen it already changing our entire culture from a culture of tolerance into a culture of power and capitalism and greed and mostly exhibited by the development of Aboriginal gangs, which are nothing more than survival mechanisms for how you survive in a prison. Uh, but afterwards they move into the, the market, in the illegal markets, and they're becoming much more powerful than even our political organizations. So if we want an Aboriginal culture, we're going to have to go reclaim it again. And we're going to have to first take it away from the provincial justice systems, not totally, but in a large part, and start reconstructing and go back to some very fundamental legal principles of our culture and our language and try and put that together to make some kind of healing circle for all the broken people and to affirm to the younger generations where we're going in terms of our destiny. How this healing circle is to be established is the question now facing Sawgage Henderson and his colleagues. The right to it has been affirmed. Everyone agrees that the present situation is untenable and will likely grow worse as the Aboriginal baby boom continues to come of age. So what is to be done? The uh, Supreme Court has already said that the system is broken. The Attorney Generals of across Canada in 1995 said the system was broke. We all agree on the fundamental proposition that the system is broke for Aboriginal people. We have to incorporate some of Aboriginal law in it to make it work. And there's two sort of big versions of that. One is that we can tinker with the existing system and try and make it better. And we did that with uh, sentencing circles where we brought in the community and the victims to confront the person. But we got a lot of problems with that because it's not our system and it's just in a bigger system. And we keep getting appealed by the uh, Crown prosecutors, which adds about another seven to $15,000 to every litigation. 
and most of the time we have to do this without the participant or the payment of the uh, client because they don't have that much money and legal aid doesn't pay it. So there is now developing a, a very clear majority saying that we have to create, like in the United States, our own court system using different procedures to heal the breaches within communities and between peoples and really start perfecting a theory of justice as healing rather than justice as punishment. The aboriginal court system that Sawgage Henderson envisions would remain part of the criminal justice system, and people wanting to be tried in provincial or federal courts would still have that right. Such a system, he recognizes, would be, by itself, only a precondition for what he calls justice as healing, and not its actual accomplishment. He's noticed, for example, how similar the American tribal courts often are to the state courts. The key to establishing a truly different system, he thinks, will lie in the recovery of Aboriginal cultures and languages, which for him are the bearers of the native understanding of law. That some of the best experiences in the United States that's been documented is taking young Aboriginal offenders and teaching them their language in jail. Because if they're thinking in English and they're thinking in a European style um, and they're surrounded by that, they don't know what the Aboriginal consciousness says about all this. They don't even have the words or the vocabularies or a way of looking at this world from a different point of view that lets them understand what's expected of them as a human of a certain tribe if they want to remain part of that tribe and to continue on in the traditions and create a new alternative destiny for themselves and their people and their children. It's been very powerful in the States as a tool, just as it's been in Canada with the ceremonies coming in with people who previously never knew their ceremonies. But the ceremonies is just the tip of the iceberg the learning the language and the learning it in the right way and learning about all their relationships and why they're human and why certain behavior goes against the whole grain of the people as they've experienced an evolution through time. Sawgage Henderson's hopes rest, for the moment, on a threatened foundation. Chief Ron Ignace, who heads the Assembly of First Nations Committee on Aboriginal Languages, recently told an international conference in Toronto that many Aboriginal languages are, in his words, on the precipice of extinction. Of the 60 Aboriginal languages spoken across Canada a century ago, he said, only four, Ojibwe, Cree, Inuktitut, and Dakota, remain really vital. But Sawgage Henderson remains optimistic, and one of the things that cheers him is the number of Aboriginal legal scholars, judges, and lawyers now practicing in Canada. Aboriginal perspectives, he says, are now being brought to bear on the Western tradition of what he calls artificial law, creating a dialogue that he believes will eventually make Canada a beacon to the rest of the world. We now have an amazing number of Aboriginal lawyers and now judges who've been able to master all the intricacies of Canadian law and even human rights law and international law, but still have found out that somewhere in their soul, the 
essence of where this justice is coming from is coming from an Aboriginal position. It's not coming from the law books, and it's not coming from all the, the law text, that the more they have to decide tough questions, and the more they have to pace around their desk or stay awake at night worrying about a problem, is that somehow your your Aboriginal instincts read to you a whole different way of looking at the problem and the law. And it's almost, some people have been saying, almost like a new vision quest for a, or a new ritual for a new world of artificial law. It's the way you dream into artificial law and create those structures that are necessary. But what we found is that that really comes from an Aboriginal consciousness and a quest that can't be discontinued, and that's the quest for justice, the quest from the the victimized or the dominated to reconstruct justice according to their experiences and the best of their uh, oral traditions and, and teachings. And I think that's the fabulous thing that's going to make Canadian law something really beautiful and astounding for the rest of the world who are still looking for those solutions. the foundations of the idea that Aboriginal people ought to have their own institutions of justice is the perception that the existing system has failed them. The Manitoba Justice Inquiry has said so, and so has the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples and the Supreme Court. The criminal justice system, according to this perception, is racist, and its failure to understand and respect cultural differences puts all Aboriginal people at higher risk of imprisonment. But is this the whole story, criminologist Carol LaPrairie wanted to know. Carol LaPrairie is one of the few people, to my knowledge, who has done extensive empirical research in this area. And one of the things she's noticed is that since the issue of over-incarceration of Aboriginal people was first broached in the 1970s, the problem has continued to grow worse, despite every effort to address it. This led her to ask whether the problem itself has been well-defined. Specifically, she wondered whether the offenders who are being jailed in such disproportionate numbers might be coming mainly from a certain stratum of Aboriginal society and not from Aboriginal society in general. So she undertook research in the inner cities of Edmonton, Regina, Toronto, and Montreal. When I went into the inner city research, one of the kind of theories that I was trying to test out was that, in fact, class rather than race might be the issue here. And, you know, when I, one of the things that I did is that I divided the people into three groups. I had something called inner one, inner two, and inner three. And I found out that the inner one, who were the people who were really most marginalized and really on the street, were very heavily involved in the criminal justice system and were, you know, had suffered the most severe, I think, problems as children and as adults. But as you kind of move beyond that to people who had residences or people in Outer Three who moved in and out of the inner city, you saw a big difference in their involvement in the criminal justice system. You also saw a big difference in 
the proportion of inner one and inner two and inner three in eastern and western inner cities. If you looked at Regina and uh, Edmonton, for example, there were many more of the inner one groups in those, even though we randomly sampled. Many more of the people in the inner city, in those western cities, were inner one which means that you have a larger group of marginalized people who I think are more vulnerable both to the commission of crime and to criminal justice processing. Carol LaPrairie's study found that the intensity and duration of Aboriginal people's involvement in the justice system was closely related to their social and economic position and that this position was generally worse in the West than in the East. Racism may have been the original cause of the epidemic social problem she observed, but it was social disorganization, family disruption, slum housing, and drug and alcohol abuse that best predicted who would end up in jail. When I did the inner city research, I could think that I can honestly say it was the most traumatic research I've ever done. There were times when I first started it, you know, that I didn't think I could finish it. And it was because of the stories that people told me about their lives. And I was astonished by how many men it involved, how many men were on the streets compared to women. Women seemed to have other links in their lives, even though they may have suffered dreadful situations in their lives. They often had children or they had a partner, or they had some kind of hook that kept them in a situation where their quality of life was better. So many of the men that I interviewed, and especially the inner one men, had so few hooks to anything. They had had these awful lives. They often had alcohol, serious alcohol problems. Violence was so normalized. You know, I remember asking somebody if they'd ever been assaulted violently. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, punched, pushed. The kind of thing that I, as a middle-class researcher, if somebody came along and pushed me, I would, or punched me, I would consider myself well assaulted. For this person, assaulted, and he pulled up his shirt and showed me this knife mark down his stomach. And his idea of being assaulted was something like that. Being punched or being pushed didn't mean very much to him. And I think it's this kind of normalization of violence in people's lives. It, it becomes accepted as a, as a way of life. And the other thing that was normal to so many of these people was being involved in the criminal justice system. Carol LaPrairie's research points to a possible reframing of the idea that the disproportionate number of Aboriginal people in prison results from a systemic racial and cultural bias in the administration of justice. It does not say, I should emphasize, that there is no prejudice against natives. But it does suggest that the predominant reason why there are too many native people in prison is because too many of them live in social and economic conditions that make them vulnerable to involvement in the criminal justice system. Over-incarceration, Carol LaPrairie says, reflects the relatively much larger lower class in Aboriginal society. Some people are certainly much more disadvantaged than others. I sometimes make the comparison in my own mind. I look at non-Aboriginal society as a kind of diamond shape with a, a group at the top who are very well off and then this wide middle class 
and then it goes down to a point at the bottom, which is this smaller, disadvantaged group at the bottom. And then I look at demographics of Aboriginal society, and I see it more as a pyramid shape, where you have a smaller middle class, you have a point at the top where you have certainly a more elite group, and then you have this very wide base at the bottom. And I think that what we know about who gets involved in the criminal justice system, and I think one only need go and spend some time in courts, as I have done and you've probably done, to see, you know, who appears in court. And by and large, it's probably the most marginalized people in our society. And you have a greater proportion of Aboriginal people who fall into this group than you do in non-Aboriginal society. But there's also variation in that across the country. And you can almost draw this line. And when I was looking at some socio-demographic stuff, when I mean by that, I mean looking at education levels, um, looking at employment levels, all the kind of standard stuff we look at to, you know, to measure socioeconomic status and kind of social stratification. You can almost draw a line just east of Thunder Bay because there's a part of Ontario around Thunder Bay that I think approximates Manitoba. Saskatchewan, Alberta, more closely in terms of socio-demographics. The other thing that I discovered, I think, in my community work, in the communities, that the Aboriginal communities that I worked in, and again, this is, I think, another kind of conventional wisdom that perhaps needs to be looked at or challenged, is that there is social stratification in Aboriginal society. Um, And you see, certainly, and one sees that in the communities, and I certainly saw it in the communities that I worked in and and lived in, there are haves and haves not, as there are in many communities. I suspect probably there's more have-nots, though, and it's some of those have-nots who leave to try to find a better life in the city. Recognizing social stratification in Aboriginal communities leads on to the larger question of whether these communities are generally as uniform and homogeneous as they are sometimes taken to be. The question is significant for justice reform because returning justice to the community is often proposed as the solution to the over-involvement of natives in the criminal justice system. The proposal assumes that there is an uninterrupted cultural consensus in these communities about what justice is. Carol LaPrairie has spent time in a number of Aboriginal communities, including a year in the Cree communities of James Bay in northern Quebec, and she wonders if this assumption still holds. We've often assumed of assumed Aboriginal societies, you know, as being perhaps more communal, more egalitarian, and I think in some respects they certainly are more communal. But things have changed. I mean, one of the interesting things about the James Bay communities that I've lived in is that one starts to see the impact, for example, of mass communication. You see a great change in wage labor with a lot of people working in the band councils and fewer and fewer fewer people making their living, say, on trap lines. You see a great change emphasis on education. You see a plurality of values, so there's not necessarily a consensus of values. And these have come about, I think, because of these other changes in communities. You see quite a change in 
traditional structures and the fact that the traditional lines of authority that were largely based on age and on gender and on people's ability, for example, in the bush, I think a lot of that is broken down. And one of the things that the older people would often say to me in these communities is that the young people didn't respect them. And uh, the other big change, I think, is the very large, large numbers of young people. Aboriginal birth rates, you know, are still almost double non-Aboriginal. And in those Cree communities, I think something like 68% of the population was under 24. And I think that compares to about, for example, 37% or so in the rest of Quebec. So that you've got this large group of young people, and so you have peer influences. You also have television that brings images of the outside world and of teen subculture into communities, and that can't help but change communities. Carol LaPrairie's observations suggest certain cautions about community justice and about the extravagant hopes that are sometimes invested in this idea. Her view generally is that too much is taken for granted when it comes to justice alternatives and that what is needed first is a focused program of research that will yield solid knowledge on which to base public policy. Her inner city research provides an example of what she thinks is wanted and why she thinks it's necessary. Identifying poverty, demoralization, and pandemic physical and sexual violence as the main reasons why so many natives end up in jail suggests different remedies and the belief that a discriminatory justice system is mainly to blame. And without a correct diagnosis of the cause, she thinks, what hope of a cure? In what remains of tonight's broadcast, I want to focus in on one Aboriginal justice program and try to give a sense of how it works and how it is different. The program is called the Community Council and it is run by Aboriginal Legal Services of Toronto. The council is composed of 30 members of the Aboriginal community who deal with cases diverted from the courts under an agreement with Toronto's Crown Attorneys. Offenders meet in an informal setting with a panel of three or four council members and then come to an agreement on the conditions they are to fulfill. These can include apology, restitution, counseling, community service, and various personal reforms. Offenders who fail to complete their conditions face no legal consequences but cannot be readmitted to the program until they do. The council's director and one of its founders is Jonathan Rudin, a non-native lawyer with a long-standing interest in the Aboriginal understanding of law. He says that they take all comers, subject only to space limitations, and consequently, they often deal with extremely troubled people. Almost half, and this varies year to year, but almost half have been adopted or in care at some point in their lives. Most haven't finished high school. Most are not at all connected with the Aboriginal community. That's what we're dealing with people who are estranged from the Aboriginal community and largely estranged from any community. We're dealing with people largely, not exclusively, who are living out the visions other people had for them. 
you know, they were never going to amount to anything. They were always no good. They were always a problem. They were an Indian with all the negative connotations that had. Many of our clients come from adoptive homes where there's an adoptive breakdown, where when things start to go badly, a parent or a relative will say, that's the Indian in you acting out. So they have no positive sense of who they are. And when they get in trouble with the law, they are just living out everyone's vision of who they are. They don't have a sense that there is another option. So one of the significant aspects of a community council hearing is that firstly, they're sitting around the room, a table, around a table, with three Aboriginal people, all of whom are making lives for themselves in Toronto. They may not be making a fortune, but they're all making a good life for themselves, which is an important message. It says that can be done. It seems like nothing, but if, you're, if you've been raised in an environment where you're assumed you will always be a failure, where all your problems are blamed on the fact that you're an Indian, when you deal with the standard prejudice and racism in our society, it's quite significant. Oh, look, there are people who, who are like me, who are successful. And as well, many, most of our council members have gone through what our clients have gone through. If they haven't gone through, they've had brothers or sisters who've gone through it. So there's an ability to talk about experiences in a very real way. The Community Council is based on a philosophy of justice that stresses care and consideration for both offenders and victims. The program was set up in 1992, and its establishment was preceded by a long period of consultation within Toronto's Aboriginal community about how it should proceed. This process culminated in a meeting of elders at the Manitoulin Island community of Birch Island. And it was there, Jonathan Rudin says, that the new organization's direction was set. When we went up to Birch Island, the first question I asked was, what skills should we look for in council members? You know, if we're going to be asking people to sit, what, what should we be looking for? And the elders and traditional teachers spent a half day with me on this, uh, largely because I couldn't get it. It's simple to me now, but it was very hard for me then. The message was we should look for people who will treat victims and offenders with kindness and respect. And that's the key. And if you treat people with kindness and respect, you can accomplish a great deal. And treating people with kindness and respect doesn't mean that you never raise your voice. It never means you don't say, stop feeding me that line of crap. It doesn't mean any of those things. You can do those things. But if you do it in a way where you treat people with kindness and respect, where you're not imposing power relationships on people, you can accomplish a great deal. And that's certainly what we found. Many of the clients who come into hearings talk about things in their lives that they'd never spoken to anybody about. They talk about things that they had no intention of talking about when they came to the council hearing. But they do so because they realize the people who are there care about them. The rule is what's said in a council room stays in the council room. So they can say whatever they want. They don't have to worry that it's going to get out later, that someone's going to say, oh, you said X or Y, or this happened to you, or that happened to you. That's not going to happen. And a hearing takes as long as a hearing needs to take. We've had hearings take 20 minutes. We've had, I think, a hearing the longest was six or seven hours. And it's not a counseling session. It's not, about, it's not about healing somebody. It's about identifying the work that needs to be done and helping the person, helping the client take responsibility both for their actions. It's important. It's vital that they do that. And then you can be responsible for changing those things. And that's what the council members and Aboriginal Legal Services and all the other service organizations around are there to help the person do, to help them make those changes. 
Now, how would you contrast our, our received understanding of justice? Well, if you go to court and watch a sentencing, what do you see? You see the individual, the, and uh, they stand up, the charge is read, and say to the client, how do you plead? And if the client has a lawyer, the, the lawyer says, Your Honor, my client pleads guilty. The client sits down. Someone reads the facts of the case, which may or may not be the facts of the case. Are those facts correct? The lawyer sort of leans over, says something to the client. Sometimes the client starts shaking his head, saying the facts aren't right. And the lawyer sort of saying, well, shut up. It doesn't matter. If you say the facts aren't right, we're going to have a trial. You've got a deal. Just be quiet. So then the lawyer says, these facts are correct. And then they do a sentence. Then we're going to discuss sentence. And they, someone says to the lawyer, what do you have to say about sentence? And the lawyer says, well, Your Honor, my client is X or Y or Z. And often what the lawyer tries to do, because they're trying to keep the client out of jail, is spin the saddest story they can spin. In fact, a story that in many ways tries to distance the individual from any sense of responsibility. Well, you know, he had an awful upbringing, blah, blah. And these things may be true. All these things happen and this and this and this and this and this, as if to say, he's not really responsible for what he's done. Therefore, you shouldn't send him to jail because if he's really responsible, then you have to send him to jail. It's just sort of the dichotomy we have in the Western system is the more responsible you are, you know, and we have to punish you harder. So we have a system, in fact, which encourages people to try and come up with reasons why I didn't really do it. I mean, I know I did it, but think of my circumstances, etc. Now, what responsibility has the individual taken? Well, none. The individual probably has the client, the offender, probably hasn't spoken in court. The judge knows nothing about the person except what the person has maybe told the lawyer and what the lawyer chooses to tell the judge. And if there's a pre-sentence report, what people have chosen to tell people. And out of that, we're going to try and fashion a sentence. I don't know what you can meaningfully accomplish, at least in terms of how you're going to work to make changes in that person's life. You can certainly use that information to decide how long you want the person to go to jail, I guess. But that's not going to do much to address what's going on in the person's life because you don't know anything about that. So the council hearing is completely different. We try and take a holistic approach. The goal of this holistic approach is to instill a desire to change in the offender. He may be asked to right the wrongs he has done, but there is no sense of making the offender suffer an equivalent harm to the one he has imposed on others. No punishment. And this is where the Aboriginal approach offers a radical challenge to our inherited thinking about justice. The Community Council, Jonathan Rudin says, begins from the assumption that punishment is futile because until the offender has been taught and shown justice, he is deaf to its claim. Many of the people we deal with have severe drug and alcohol problems. Why do they have severe drug and alcohol problems? Well, often because they have been victims of physical, sexual abuse or whatever. So first of all, in the moral equation, victim, offender, most of our offenders actually are victims. It's sort of funny, you know, we, we like to divide the world in this sort of dualistic victim, good, offender, bad. Well, most of our clients have been both. And being a victim helps explain why they're offender. Doesn't forgive them, but explains it. But we don't like to think about that. But the other thing about alcohol and drugs are they are an exceptionally good coping mechanism. You know, if I want to forget some awful things that have happened to me in my life, Alcohol and drugs are really good. So moral approbation for the general community hardly makes a big difference. Also, it's not as though the general community was there when our clients were physically sexually abused, when they were removed from their homes and sent to residential school, when all the things that have been done to Aboriginal people were done. 
So it's hard to see why the moral approbation or reprobation by a judge will have a whole heck of a lot of meaning. You know, where were you when I was five years old? Nobody was there. So the thought that somehow someone who's been through that is going to be swayed by the state suddenly now taking an interest in them because they've done something wrong, you know, I think that's a stretch. And I think if the concern is to stop criminal behavior from happening, then you look at ways in which you can do that. If we abandon that as a goal, if the goal is simply to punish people for the sake of punishing them, to sort of let the world know that certain behaviors cannot be tolerated, then fine. But most people, I don't think, are interested in punishment for punishment's sake. Most people want to live in a safer society. And our feeling is the program that we have has a much better chance of leading to a safer society, of leading to people ceasing the activities that bother people so much and also just ceasing the activities that are self-destructive to them and allowing them to become productive members of society. That's, that's what our program is doing, and I would think people would want that. Punishment is also futile, Jonathan Rudin argues, because jail holds no terror for most of the people who appear before the council. It's an accepted and accustomed part of their world. I think one of the difficulties people have when we talk about justice and alternatives is that for most people who've never been to jail, going to jail is just such an awful thing that we can't imagine anything worse. Someone who's been to jail five or six times, it's no big deal. You know, it's, they know how to do it. Some people are very comfortable with it. You know, it's not uncommon in northern communities to find people breaking, you know, the story you break a window in November so you can do time in the winter. I mean, it's not, it's not like an incredibly hard life if you're used to it. So, again, it's hard for people to say, well, they're getting it off easy because, well, what's unsaid is because if it were me, I would hate to go to jail. But it's not you. It's this person who's already been to jail 12 times. So obviously jail is not some huge deterrent to their, their activities. So what we found clients tell us is that it's harder to do the work that we want them to do because we want them to start thinking about why they're doing what they're doing. We have expectations that they're going to do something. Going to jail means sitting around for a while. It's not a hard thing to do. The fact that doing jail time is easier than turning one's life around indicates the magnitude of the challenge the Community Council faces. A recent independent evaluation of the program underlines the point. It showed that during the two-year study period, two-thirds of the clients had fulfilled their conditions, that most of the clients who were interviewed felt that the Council had helped them, and that many of those interviewed were now more involved in the Aboriginal community but it also showed that there was only a modest decline in the number of offenses people committed after going through the program as compared with before. This is not necessarily a mark of failure. Changes in people often take shape over a longer period than the two years of the study, and this is particularly true of people in circumstances as desperate as many of the Council's clients. But it does point to the difficulties the Council faces. And these difficulties are compounded by the fact that initiatives like the Council program still play only a small, exceptional, and insecure part in the justice system as a whole. They have gained a precarious toehold, Jonathan Rudin says, but they are still far from being regarded as a regular and rightful part of justice. One of the realities about Aboriginal justice programs is that they are marginal. Without sympathetic people within government and in the justice system, 
programs would come to a halt. I mean, the program that we have would be over tomorrow if, for example, the Crown Attorney's Office in Toronto decided to change their attitudes towards consenting to diversions. Because we have no inherent right to get anyone into this program. It's a diversion program. The Crown consents. The program could end if a government decided, ah, we don't want to fund this stuff anymore. So there is no footing, and that's a hard way to, to operate. We have no sense of permanence, really. I mean, I hope that we'll continue. We're trying to expand the program into dealing with young offenders, child welfare matters. There are all sorts of places we could go. But as I said, you know, something could happen tomorrow and it could all get wiped away. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part four of To Hurt or To Heal. Our five-part series on restorative justice will conclude tomorrow night with a program that looks at the popular rage for punishment and asks what prisons can actually do to reform offenders. Tonight's program was written, produced, and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler. David Cayley is also the author of the Expanding Prison, The Crisis in Crime and Punishment, and The Search for Alternatives, published by House of Anansi Press. Technical production and studio direction was by Dave Field. Associate producers, Catherine Hughes and Liz Nage. You can get a printed transcript of this series for $25, or a set of five cassette tapes for $39.95. To order by credit card, call us at area code 416-205-7367. Or you can send a check to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The number for credit card orders, once again, is 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler. I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up, the hourly news, then the arts today, and between the covers.